This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. Do you like boats? Do you like big boats? Do you like poor people and the rich people they serve on big boats? Are you always like, what goes on below deck? Hi, this is Anna Hosnier. And Nick Turner. The hosts of Deckheads. And we want to take you on a fun and goofy adventure. In this binge-style podcast, we will watch and recap every episode of Bravo's Below Deck and all of its spinoffs. And we're going to release an episode a day so you can watch along with us and listen to our silly daily recaps. Listen to Deckheads when it drops on February 20th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And this is going to start not on topic, but I'm going to loop it around, I promise you. So Tracy, when you think about Samuel Adams, what are the words that come to mind? Boston Brewing. Right. Brewer, Patriot. Because it's on the bottles of the beer. Yes. Uh, and he's one of those that people, it's almost a joke now that it's that juxtaposition of weird things together. Today's topic uh, is a man who is kind of similar. There are a lot of things attributed to him. Uh, he was the Ottoman Empire's Suleiman the Magnificent, and he was a head of state. He was a poet. He was a reformer of the military. He completely, you know, reorganized their legal system, and he was a goldsmith. He was a busy bee, that's what I'm getting at. Uh, and his reign, as I said, had a significant impact on the law, uh, the literature, the art of the Ottoman Empire. And during the time of Suleiman I, who was the 10th sultan of the Ottoman Empire, the ter- territory of his nation stretched from the Balkans to North Africa. It was a major political power. He really expanded their territory and expanded their culture. Uh, and Katie and Sarah actually discussed him briefly in their episode, The Cinderella of the Harem, which is about a woman named Roxolana, who was part of his harem and became his consort and wife. Uh, and they talk about him briefly, but we're going to talk a lot about him and specifically uh, the Siege of Vienna, which is a military effort that he made that ended up being pretty pivotal to... Um, world history and culture and many other things. So we are going to start with his early life. Before Suleiman, there was Selim I, who was his father. Selim was known as Selim the Grim in most Western translations, but also as Selim the Stern or Selim the Steadfast. He actually wasn't Sultan yet when Suleiman was born. At that point in time, Suleiman's grandfather, Sultan Bayezid II, was still the Sultan. And Selim uh, I had many, many daughters, but Suleiman was his only son and thus the heir to the empire. Suleiman was born sometime between November 1494 and April of 1495. And a lot of sources place his birth date at the 6th of November 1494. He was born in Trabzon, which sits on the coast of the Black Sea in modern-day Turkey. 
And Selim I was really, really adamant about education and that his son be well educated, likely because he recognized that this was a child that was in line for the throne and needed to be a leader, so he needed to know a great deal. And so Suleiman was first, when he was very small, schooled by his grandmother. And then when he was seven, he went to Istanbul to live with his father, Sultan Bayezid II, uh, because Istanbul was the the political seat of the Ottoman Empire. And while staying in Istanbul, Suleiman was tutored by all of the great scholars of the day. He learned about history, theology, science, art, and literature. And he also learned about military strategy and tactics. Suleiman spent several years in Istanbul following this really rigorous course of study before he went back home. And uh, when he was home in Trabzon uh, after a few years, he was about 15 when he decided that he felt a little bit ready for some responsibility. So his grandfather was still the sultan. Uh, His father was governing various parts of the empire. Uh, But they decided that they would give Suleiman governorship of Kaffa in Crimea. When his father, Sultan Selim I, ascended to the throne in 1512, Suleiman got more responsibility. He became the governor of Manisa in Western Asia Minor. But Selim's reign was relatively short. He died quite young at the age of 55 after getting suddenly ill. His exact cause of death continues to be debated. There are all kinds of theories that include poisoning, skin cancer, and a skin infection that he got from spending too much time in the saddle on his many military campaigns. And regardless of the cause of Selim's demise, it brought Suleiman to the throne in September of 1520 at the age of roughly 26. To kick off his reign, Suleiman launched campaigns against the Christian powers of the Mediterranean and Central Europe. The city of Belgrade, which is in modern-day Serbia, was seized by Suleiman in 1521. The island of Rhodes fell not long after. That was in late 1522 or early 1523. Uh, That had been held by the Knights of St. John since the early 14th century. Yeah, that was a huge, huge win for him. Uh, The Ottoman Empire had attempted to take Rhodes once before in 1480 under the military direction of Mehmed II, but that had been an unsuccessful campaign. So very early on, Suleiman was establishing himself as an extremely capable military leader. In August of 1526, Suleiman further advanced his forces in an effort to expand Ottoman territory. The river port of Mohawks in south-central Hungary was also taken by the Turks. And this battle resulted in the death of Hungarian King Louis II. And it had huge reverberations throughout Hungary for decades. Uh, Yeah, this left Hungary with no king on the throne. And so, as always happens when there's a, a power gap... People want to argue over who gets to sit there. Uh, the Archduke of Austria at the time, Ferdinand I, claimed this power. But the throne was also claimed by uh, John of Zapolia, also called Lord John of Transylvania. And uh, Suleiman really, really did not delight in the Habsburgs. And so he favored uh, the Transylvanian uh, claimant to the throne. And he granted recognition to John as ruler of Hungary in a vassal capacity. Before we talk about what happened next, which will take us to Vienna, let's take a brief moment and talk about a word from a sponsor. Super. Hey, Holly, we have some exciting news. Yeah, I am wildly excited, and uh, people will have another opportunity to watch me cry at art. (laughs) Yeah, you sounded so calm, and it's not a calm situation at all. 
Uh, our trip to Paris last year was really successful, so we're doing another similar trip this year, but this time to Rome and Florence. It's May 14th through 21st, 2020, and like last time, it is with a company called Defined Destinations, who is planning out this whole trip for us. Yeah, and during that week-long trip, we are going to see some of the great art that we have talked about on this show many times, including Michelangelo's David. We are going to go to Tuscany. We're going to visit St. Peter's Basilica. We are going to the Sistine Chapel. So it's going to be a fantastic trip. You can get the whole list of places that we are going and information about booking at defineddestinations.com. Scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuff You Missed in History Class or come over to our social media. We have posts about it there too. Hey, listeners, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast from iHeartRadio called The Women, hosted by Rose Reed. It is a fascinating and deep dive interview show where Rose talks to changemakers and disruptors, and she finds out what really drives them. So she will ask each of them, what was your first stand and how do you navigate success and failure? And really, what's the cost of fighting for others? These interviews are really personal and they're candid and sometimes they're a little bit crass, but they are always really enlightening. You can listen to these firebrands and takeaway lessons that will help you navigate your own life and forge your own path. The debut season includes women like Valerie Plame, the former CIA agent who is now running for Congress, and whistleblower and pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha, who exposed the Flint water crisis and became the center of a swirling, swirling amount of problems, uh, and the legendary Buffy St. Marie, 60s songwriter and activist. Uh, I have personal interest in this show because I adore Rose and I executive produce it, and I think you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So to get back uh, to the story, to cement his anti-Austrian stance on this whole matter, Suleiman also decided to invade Vienna in 1529. So at this point, Vienna was one of the largest cities in Europe, and it sat 150 kilometers from the Ottoman border. More importantly, though, it was at a vital trading position. So if Suleiman could have captured Vienna, he would have potentially gained control over a whole lot of Europe. Yes, and he definitely was into gaining control over a whole lot of things. Uh, and while this was really a power and economic clash and a, a bid for more power, the siege of Vienna was painted as a jihad in a bigger conflict between Islam and Christianity. But most historians will sort of tell you that this was sort of a holy war only on paper. Like they really, the religion was not such a big issue of it. And while the Ottoman Sultan had met with great military success in many previous campaigns, especially early on in his uh, leadership, this one really, really challenged his troops and his knowledge of military action. This campaign was mounted in the spring as 150,000 Turks left Ottoman Bulgaria and started moving toward Vienna. Flooding, however, made some of the routes impossible. The artillery became waterlogged, and the Ottoman camels, who were really not suited to wet conditions, either got sick, they died, or they simply couldn't negotiate in the mud. Horses and troops were also swept away by heavy rains, and men are said to have survived all of this by climbing trees and spending several nights there. Yeah, they were just not prepared for this kind of weather. It was an unusually rainy spring, and so it really, really... uh kind of, I think even if they had been prepared for that sort of weather, they would not have been prepared for that level of 
just wet, constant, rainy weather. Uh, and aside from the difficulty with the military operations in these conditions, the unusually wet season had also significantly imp- impacted crops. So grain was much less plentiful than normal due to flooded fields, and it also became prohibitively expensive to acquire. So the Turkish army was also dealing with a ration shortage sort of throughout this campaign. Like There just was not enough food to go around for Austria and Hungary to begin with, but then to add 150,000 additional men tromping through, not so much food available. By the time the first horsemen of the Ottoman army finally got to Vienna, it was late September, and this first wave played on the fear and panic that had already swept through the city as news of an impending attack had spread. So the Ottoman army brutally attacked the outskirts of Vienna, Women and children were captured as slaves, and men were decapitated. Yeah, there aren't many accounts, uh, first-hand accounts of what happened during this time, but both sides, their accounts of it are horrifying. Of course, one is like, yes, we sure showed them, and one is like, yes, these people are savages. Uh, really, really awful. Uh, and Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, for his part, was not really quick to address the problems that were going on in Vienna with this attack. He was busy fighting with France uh, uh, because he was also trying to expand his territory, although he did eventually manage to send somewhere between 17,000 and 18,000 soldiers for hire to Vienna. Uh, And to pay these mercenaries, church treasures were smelted into coins. On September 24th, the Ottoman troops got to Vienna en masse, and Vienna was surrounded and cut off from the rest of the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, the idea was to force Vienna to surrender with this huge show of manpower. Yeah, if you've been following the numbers, even after the four months of tromping through the horrible rain and losing a lot of men, they started with 150,000 men. And what what Charles V could muster for Vienna's defense was a, a little over 17,000. So already that's a huge drop. And that almost doubled the number of people in Vienna at the time. So even so, they're like at one third of what the Ottoman Empire had. And uh, it, yeah, Suleiman didn't really want to fight. He just wanted to lay down the law and have a surrender. And he offered the citizens uh, that if they converted to Islam, they would all be spared. Surrender, Suleiman's slave messengers told Vienna, would save the city and absolutely no one would be harmed. But they were also very clearly warned that if they did not surrender, there was a bloodbath coming and it would be brutal and it would be absolutely unforgiving. But surrender did not come. The Turks were really known for their well-organized and efficient military, so this was a pretty bold move on Vienna's part. The people there had taken to heart the holy war aspect of this conflict, and they saw defiance as the only way to stay loyal to their faith and to one another as opponents of this very different culture from the Ottoman Empire. And so on September 26th, the uh, siege of Vienna, the actual battle started. And as you'll recall, in all of the flooding, uh, Suleiman's army had to leave their heavy artillery early on in the flood as they were marching to Vienna. And so what they had left was uh, these smaller cannons. And so they initially attacked the city with this sort of quantity over quality approach, uh, where they were just volleying cannonballs constantly at the city. Uh, and these were the only really sort of explosive weapons that they had been able to salvage on their journey. But they were actually plotting and preparing a much bigger uh, attack than this constant volley of small cannon fire. 
Throughout the series of cannon attacks, the Ottoman army was digging tunnels and trenches around Vienna. They were going to attack from below using explosive charges, and this goal was to collapse the heavy wall that surrounded the city. And meanwhile, uh, the Turkish light cavalry, so these have been the people that had gotten to Vienna first and done some very savage things, uh, which, and they were also considered extremely skilled bowmen, they continued to just terrorize the countryside around Vienna. The slaughter of farmers and peasants was intended to terrify the citizens of the city and show them the brutality that awaited them if they continued to resist the Ottoman army. According to Austrian Secretary of War Peter Stern, who recorded the siege from the Vienna perspective, the Turks were utterly ruthless in these attacks. Impaled babies, serial rapes, and torture are all described in abundance in Stern's account. Yeah, once again, also from the Ottoman account, they are also pretty congruent in terms of the things they were doing. It wasn't like they were just painted as these horrible people by the people that were victims. Right. It's not Vienna was portraying people as as being brutal. Yeah, they were brutal. Right. Although uh, there are some historians that will point to Stern's uh, depiction of the Turks as sort of like the seeds of an ongoing uh, kind of assumption that all of the Ottomans were savage like this rather than just the army, like the whole people were sort of painted in this light after this. Uh, And on September 28th, so this had been going on for two days, this sort of volley of attacks, a cold front came in and it brought this heavy, seemingly endless rain. And knowing that this weather was going to hinder any Turkish assault attempts, Vienna's morale was actually quite bolstered by this steady, inclement weather. Uh, The opposite was true for the Ottoman camp. The early arrival of winter weather was really like a blow to their morale. It was problematic. Remember, they're laying the explosive charges under the city. Fuses that get wet don't really do so much good. Uh, And they were just cold and miserable. It wasn't weather they were used to. They were, you know, really struggling. The rain finally let up and the tunneling operation resumed on October 1st. And on October 6th, the Viennese sent several thousand troops out to attack the Turks' tunneling enterprise. And this move was actually orchestrated with great precision. Uh, it was, you would think it would be tricky for a couple thousand people to sneak around, uh, but they really managed to do it because they took the Turks completely by surprise. And this move did shut down the Ottoman attack from under the city, but unfortunately, many of the men fighting for Vienna were also lost in the process. So, while the Ottoman army did detonate some of its explosives, the people of Vienna were ready. There was a battle, but the breach that the explosion had created was just too small to really enable the Turks to get to take over the city. Morale in the Ottoman camp, which was at this point going hungry, really dropped to an extreme low. And so the leaders of the Ottoman army decided that they would plan one final last-ditch effort attack. And in this attack, three groups of soldiers were going to storm the city. Uh, And this happened on October 12th. And this battle took about two hours, and the Turks really lost a lot of men. Uh, The Viennese were ready for them. And as they lost men, they also lost all hope of taking Vienna. Uh, Accounts state that over the next two nights, the Ottoman camp was full of screams that the Viennese could hear because the Turks were killing all of their prisoners so that they wouldn't have to be burdened with them any further. 
The Turks turned back for another long march home through the cold and the rain and the mud. And once again, on the way home, they lost animals and men because of the weather. Yeah, there's uh, far less detailed accounts as to how many people they lost going back. Probably the people that were keeping records were just as demoralized as everyone else. Uh, and while Suleiman's forces ultimately lost the effort to take Vienna, they had destroyed enough along the way that Archduke Ferdinand could not really assemble a counterattack. And Suleiman was ab- able to fully establish the vassal kingdom of John of Transylvania in Hungary. So even though they kind of lost, they still uh, got some benefit from this whole long, arduous operation. In 1532, Suleiman attempted a second campaign into Austrian territory. It was similarly beset by poor weather, and it was abandoned early on. These failures combined led Suleiman to the conclusion that there just was not a quick and easy way to simply take over Austria. So he and Archduke Ferdinand were able to come to a truce in 1533. Yeah, there were actually several truces that came and went. So truces didn't always last forever, but it did lead to this truce initially. Suleiman really was a, uh, an accomplished man in many areas, not just battle, even though he was extremely uh, tactically gifted in the military sense. And he was certainly brutal and calculating in war. I mean, he knew about all of the horrible beheadings and baby impalings and rapings that were going on in the name of the Ottoman Empire, and he was fine with it. But he is also described as a very gracious and a very fair ruler. And under his reign, the Ottoman Empire achieved its greatest heights of power, uh, its influence really as a world power was greater than ever, and it's recognized as a time of extreme cultural growth. It's often referred to as the golden age of the Ottoman Empire. 27 Club is a new podcast about famous musicians who died prematurely and sometimes mysteriously at the age of 27. This new serialized podcast is hosted by me, Jake Brennan, creator and host of the hit music and true crime podcast, Disgraceland. My new show covers the lives and sometimes mysterious deaths of famous musicians who died at the too soon age of 27. Season one will feature Jimi Hendrix, an artist whose short career burned fast and refuses to fade away. Jimi was born on the 27th day of November and died 27 years later. In between, he lived a fascinating and highly dramatic life filled with wild exploits. Just like Jim Morrison, just like Kurt Cobain, just like Janis Joplin, the Grateful Dead's Pigpen, Robert Johnson, Amy Winehouse, the Rolling Stones, Brian Jones, and others who will all be featured in future seasons of the 27 Club. Season one of the 27 Club podcast on Jimi Hendrix, like all seasons of the 27 Club, contains adult content and explicit language. You can listen to the 27 Club on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Watch out for your ears. He's called Suleiman the Magnificent in Western historical accounts, but in the Ottoman Empire, he was called the lawgiver. Outside of the religious law, which didn't have, which he didn't have the power to alter, he made really great strides in the legal system of the Turks. He did this in a really methodical and studied way. He took all of the laws that had been set by the preceding nine sultans. He studied all of these laws at length. He omitted duplicate legislation, and he condensed it all into a simplified legal system. Yeah, he really took the most scholarly approach to it imaginable, where he kind of put together this database and and just figured out what was overlapping and what was problematic and what was kind of wasted effort and really pared things down to a much more efficient system. One tale that comes up periodically of his very fair nature 
uh, involves his discovery that a tax on goods that had been uh, collected of some of the people was collected at a higher rate than it should have been. And he allegedly did these calculations and checked the math himself. And when he realized the discrepancy, he dismissed the governor responsible and replaced him and tried to make good on this whole problem. Like he really, you know, can you imagine if people in a modern country got taxed a little bit too much? Like uh, very rarely are people ousted and like the money given back or some sort of like allowance is made to fix the problem. It's kind of like, well, taxes were high last year. Yeah. <laughs> His poetry, which he wrote under the name Muhibi, is praised for its sincere tone, and it covers a wide range of topics from uh, love for divinity to erotica. In their Roxolana episode, Katie and Sarah talk about some of the love poetry that he wrote for his consort. Yeah, his poetry is so varied in terms of topic uh, that it mirrors sort of the many personas he seemed to inhabit in his life, uh, you know, as this lawgiver, as an artist, as a patron of the arts, as a, a, a man saddled with leadership. He really seemed to have this sort of interesting uh, approach where like love and sort of, you know, a divine connection with your fellow man was higher than any sort of political state. which is interesting to think about when you also think about the brutal things that were done in his name. And he also used this Ottoman convention that I'm fascinated by, where the assigned numerical values of letters, uh, so just the way we would, if we wrote numbers uh, along our alphabet, where A would be one, B would be two, et cetera, uh, these would be used to sort of to sort of encode important dates in some uh, literary works. So, for example, when his son Mehmed died in 1543, Suleiman wrote him a poem in which the numerical values of the final lines letters sum up to the year of his son's death, which to me seems like so wonderfully methodical. Uh, I, I kind of love the idea of this sort of numbers driven poetry. His most famous line of poetry translates to, in this world, a spell of good health is the best state. This is actually a double entendre playing on the word state to mean that well-being is actually more important than politics and power. Which, again, is an interesting juxtaposition to his role as a leader, where he really was like, let's expand the empire as far as we possibly can. But he still always uh, really promoted in his poetry that that's important, but other things are way more important. Uh, and while he raised grand armies for his military efforts, he paralleled them by assembling equally impressive companies of intellectuals. So artists, philosophers, theologians, all benefited from his patronage when he was sultan. He popularized what's known as the Saz style of art by bringing it into the royal court. The word Saz is a Turkish term. It's associated with enchanted forests. And the art in this style is characterized by extremely lush foliage and blossoms. It's a style which still echoes today. And any of our listeners who are stitchers and keep up with fabric print trends, a lot of the designers who produce cotton prints that are used in quilting and apparel are still using motifs that were popularized and during this time. So if you're in the know, think Amy Butler and Tula Pink. Yeah, all of the sort of damask cotton prints that are very popular right now are the really or uh, the really overly sort of lush, really busy floral patterns. But they're they have kind of an interesting repeat to them. Those are all borrowing from the art that was popularized during this time. And architecturally, Sinan, who was Suleiman's chief of the Corps of Royal Architects, designed two mosque complexes and innumerable public buildings throughout the empire, 
uh, at Suleiman's request that have become distinctive icons of Turkish design. Uh, and their design style, again, still is echoed today. The two mosques in particular are visually quite stunning with this combination of perfectly curved domes that are juxtaposed with these sharply stylized spires. When Suleiman died in battle against Habsburg enemies on September 6, 1566, he had been in power for 46 years. He left behind several sons, and this led to intrigue as sympathizers to one son were murdered to reorganize the power structure to favor another. He was eventually succeeded by Selim II, who only reigned for eight years. Yeah, he. I mean, there's a reason he's called Magnificent, and that's because he did some pretty impressive things. Uh, I mean, he's one that I feel like, uh, I we often say this, but I feel like we could do so many episodes on different parts of his life or different aspects of his influence. So if I left out your favorite part about Suleiman, I'm sorry. Uh, we can't make everything a two-parter. Some people don't like them anyway, so we try to balance it. But... uh I absolutely love the portraits of him. I can't wait till we pin them all on Pinterest because they're really cool. Exactly sort of what you conjure in your head when you think of a sultan Mm -hmm. of the 1500s with the giant onion wrap headgear. It's absolutely beautiful. And some of the paintings are just gorgeous. Uh, But now for a gear shift. You have listener mail, don't you? I do. Hooray! So my first listener mail is from our listener, Ryan. And it is in response to our Great Kanto Earthquake podcast. And he says, Greetings, ladies. I've been living in Japan since 1994, so I always find your shows on Japanese history especially interesting. At the end of the program, you were talking about how hard it is to imagine what people were experiencing, and you mentioned the Fukushima disaster of 2011. While that was certainly terrible, I have always thought of the great Hanshin earthquake that hit Kobe primarily in January of 1995. And he links us to a video about how that all played out, which is very frightening. Uh, Though it's narrated in Japanese, you get the image of just what the whole event was like. As with the Kanto earthquake, all transportation into and out of the city was not functioning, leaving emergency personnel and others hoping for help to be stranded. I was stuck a few miles away in the north part of Osaka, and the day was a beautiful winter day. Uh, The smoke from the fires rose high into the windless sky, first one column, then two, then four or five until it all combined into one very wide black cloud of smoke. It was horrible to be stranded and to feel so helpless. I made my first trip out to the city about a week later. I walked about 20 kilometers across the city and helped people carry water water to their homes and apartments, and it's still something I remember very clearly. Streets were sometimes blocked by fallen houses and other buildings. Office buildings and apartments leaned out into the street at about a 60-degree angle. That is so terrifying to think about as my aside as I read this. Uh, the second floor missing, which was quite common for buildings between roughly about five to ten floors. Hopefully no one was on that floor at the time. And at another apartment building, the bathroom was exposed about six floors up, with the sink and the toilet leaning quite precariously out over the sidewalk below. Uh, I went through the area, shown from about four uh, minutes, 30 seconds into the video, a month or six weeks after the earthquake, and it was emotionally difficult. The whole area for a few miles was leveled by the fires to roughly eye level, apart from the odd stairwell or other cement building section that was spared. I don't recall any violence that broke out as a result of this difficulty, and quite the contrary, found the Japanese to be quite resilient and even apologetic to me as a gaijin, though I had had a much better time with the difficulty than many of them had. Some of my elderly neighbors thanked me each time they saw me for the better part of a year for helping them with some minor repairs or cleanup immediately following the earthquake. 
If you were to visit Kobe today, you'd likely not notice that anything had happened at all. And it sometimes shakes me up a bit when I realize what part of the city I'm standing in and the way that it was. Anyway, sorry that this is a bit long. Uh, and it, he kind of wraps up quickly. But that's such a fascinating account because even though that is a modern event, this that was what, 20 years ago? Not that long, yeah. I still don't remember hearing that much about it in detail. I'm sure it was covered on the news. Yeah. But, uh, it's interesting because the, his modern telling and sort of the, the fear and the just completely discombobulated nature of the city at that time is so similar to something like Kanto where it's just like, it's not even the world we know anymore. Yeah. I don't think we had reached quite the 24 hour news cycle that we have now. No. Like it was not to today's extent where everyone is plugged into everything all the time. And you're watching the same footage over and over for three hours straight. Yeah. Yeah. So so it is. It's very cool. Thank you so much for sharing that experience with us, Ryan. I, I can't imagine. And you put m- many of the images so eloquently that I think it, it paints a really interesting picture for people that have never lived through such an event. And then I also have one other quick one, which is from a postcard that we got from, I think it is our listener, Debbie. And I apologize for not being confident, but uh, and going through the mail system, the back of her postcard where she signed it got some stamping that make it a little obscured. But she says, Tracy and Holly, I already planned to visit the Field Museum before I listened to the podcast on Ruth Harkness. We went to see the special exhibit on the 1893 World's Fair. Since you mentioned it, we made sure to see Sulin and the Lions of Tsavo. Once he, one of you mentioned wanting to go back to the visit the field. That was probably me. I have absolute rabies love for the Field Museum. Now through uh, September 7th is a great time while the World's Fair exhibit is open. It's really the history of the Field Museum itself. I never knew it was originally conceived as a museum of the fair exhibits. Uh, many cool museums start that way as like a way to preserve things that happened at World's Fairs. Uh, and it, I really wanted to read this mostly to thank Debbie because uh, it gave me great ideas about doing histories on museums that are culturally important throughout the world. There are a lot of them that, you know, people know by name all over the world, but they maybe don't know the origin stories of. So thank you, Debbie. And thank you for this postcard, which I quite love. And it looks very different from the field today. The field itself looks the same, but the surrounding area does not. There's like nothing there. Whereas now if you're in Chicago and you are anywhere near the field, <laughs> that's not what it looks like. You cannot see so much open sky as that. Uh, if you would like to write to us, you can do so at history podcast at howstuffworks.com. You can also connect with us at facebook.com slash missed in history on Twitter at missed in history and missed in history And at pinterest.com slash missed in history, where, as I said, I promise there will be cool images pinned of Suleiman the Magnificent. If you would like to learn a little bit more about what we talked about today, you can go to our parent site, House Stuff Works, and type in the word Ottoman in the search bar, and you will get an incredibly interesting article called Were People Vying to Become Slaves in the Ottoman Empire? The short answer is actually yes, and the reason why is really quite uh, an interesting tale as well. So I encourage you to read it. If you would like to read that or learn about almost anything else you can think of, you can do that at our parent site, which, as I said, is HowStuffWorks.com. And if you would like to visit Tracy and I at our home on the web, that is MissedInHistory.com, where we have archived episodes, show notes, all kinds of history fun times. And we hope to see you there. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.
guys, my name is Sammy J. I have been working as a correspondent and interviewer since I was 13. And now at 17, I am so honored to be the youngest person to have her own podcast on iHeartRadio. It's called Let's Be Real with Sammy J. We'll have in-depth and unfiltered conversations with celebrities, activists, athletes, and influencers. We'll cover topics we're curious about, topics my guests are passionate about, and topics many of us are just too afraid to talk about. I get past the fluff to what's real. We go there, and it's fun, pretty crazy, and very revealing. Listen to Let's Be Real with Sammy J on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The future is closer than you think, and it all starts in the palm of your hand. You may have heard the news. 5G is coming. In this new iHeart series, This Time Tomorrow, presented by T-Mobile for Business, join me, Oswald Oshin, and my co-host, Cara Price as we walk you through the true revolution in mobility that will change the way we interact with the world around us. Join us and hear just how close we are getting to a more connected future. This Time Tomorrow is now available on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to podcasts.